Hello, everyone. I'm Aaron Good, and this is the American Exception Podcast. Today, we are talking about the Ukraine war with Bronco Marchetich, a Jacobin staff writer and the author of Yesterday's Man, The Case Against Joe Biden. We'll be talking about a number of articles he has written on the subject of Ukraine uh, in recent weeks and uh, some going back even further. You can find links to some of these in the show notes. Now let's get to it. Bronco Marshatich, it's great to have you here today. Hey, Aaron. Uh, good to be here. So you've written a few articles on uh, Ukraine. Well, you've written a number on on these things over the years, but a, a few in the uh, last month or so, which I think are really relevant. And uh, the first one, which I think deals with something that's very important, and I think in a way a sign of its importance is the way that it is uh, almost invariably misrepresented in the media, and that's the Maidan uh, revolution or the, the the coup or however you want to describe it. Um, and you wrote a pretty detailed article on this. But if you, could you take us back and uh, somehow summarize what it was that gave rise to these protests in the first place? For sure, I, I think it's uh, this is a really important event to understand for two reasons. One, I think it's the most immediate historical context for why uh, this war is going on right now. Um, but then also uh, at the moment uh, when people talk about it as a U.S. backed coup, and I think there's ambiguity around how you could talk about it, but when people mention it as a U.S. backed coup, now that's sort of being uh, uh, cited in the mainstream press as kind of Russian propaganda or like a Kremlin talking point. And that's not really accurate. I mean, there are good reasons. It's a, it's a defensible label for what happened. And I'll explain why. But but um, uh, to, to answer your question about uh, why the protests happened, uh, Ukraine had been the site of basically a great power struggle between the United States, post-Cold War, and Russia um, for a while. Um, there was the 2004 Orange Revolution, where uh, Viktor Yanukovych uh, won in elections that were basically widely uh, considered fraudulent. Um, the U.S. kind of um, backed the, the the Orange Revolution through all these NGOs and and, and civil society groups that kind of uh, helped to organize protests against that. Um, and and you know, it was for in their case, it was a very uh, good thing because it was a fraudulent election. Uh, because of it, there was another election. Um, uh, the his his opponent ended up winning. That one, uh, who also what was happened that, to... What was that fellow's name again? The other It fellow? was... Uh, oh God, I've, I've forgotten his name now suddenly. Uh, it's, it's slipping my mind. It's... Um, this is the guy that got... Yushchenko. Yushchenko. Yeah. The guy that got famously poisoned, right? Yeah. His face went, uh, went, went horrible. Uh, so Yushchenko won that, that uh, election. Uh, Yushchenko happened to be a, a pro-Western, pro-NATO politician um who who wanted to uh move ukraine into kind of the, the western orbit um and, and that should be noted at this point that a as it is now ukraine was deeply divided there's the the kind of more pro-russian east and the more pro-western uh west <laughs> uh but then uh also the the uh popular support for joining NATO was nowhere was was not even close to where it is now it was a very different time a lot most ukrainians were not for this policy 
Um, anyway, fast forward uh, six years, um, Yanukovych kind of uh, rehabilitates his image. Um, Yushchenko's uh, 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 government is not very uh, popular. Um, and uh, what ends up happening is that, uh, uh, I should say the reason he's not popular is because he also implements a bunch of neoliberal reforms that are deeply uh, damaging to, to Ukrainian society. Yanukovych wins in 2010 in, in free and fair elections. Um, however, uh, there's many problems with his rule. One of which is he is uh, pro. Uh, he's seen as kind of pro-Russian, which is not really true. His party is kind of aligned with um, Putin's party in uh, United Russia, um, but uh, beyond that, uh, he actually kind of tries to chart a course between Russia and the West because Russia is kind of squeezing him to try and bring Ukraine into its orbit. So he's, he's doing this middle ground um, path, but but people widely see him as kind of. A puppet of Moscow, uh, even if it's if it's unfair. Um, secondly, he is quite authoritarian, um, and he also is very corrupt, which is not neither of those is particularly unique to, to Yanukovych. But unfortunately, that that was the case. And so the the thing that triggers the protests is um, as the West and Russia are both trying to kind of draw Ukraine into their respective orbits. But uh, the EU uh, gives Yanukovych a, a free trade deal, and it, it says, you know, as part of this free trade deal, you've got to sign this uh, IMF loan as well. And part of the IMF loan, of course, you're going to have to do all these neoliberal reforms that are very, very bad. Uh, Russia, uh, on the one hand, uh, uh, imposes a trade blockade on Ukraine, like a mini trade blockade to sort of say, just so you know, this is what you're going to, have to be dealing with if you decide to go in this direction. Oh, and by the way, we're also going to give you the same loan, $15 billion, um, but ours doesn't have any of these strings attached to it. Um, and so Yanukovych quite rationally goes, well, the Russian deal is much better. And I, the, what, what the EU is offering me is not enough to counteract the, the trade uh, strangulation that Russia is imposing on me. So I'm going to go with this. He does that. And that's when the protests start, mostly, you know, from the, the Western part of the country that wants to join the EU. Um, uh, but the, the protests become inflamed. They, they become much bigger and more intense because Yanukovych, as you know, makes the classic mistake of every authoritarian leader. And he decides, I'm going to just, you know, come in in the middle of the night and just kind of brutally suppress these protests and get rid of them. And of course, suddenly the protests become not just about this trade deal, but about Yanukovych's authoritarian rule and uh, his corruption and and the need to free the the, the prisoners who was who were arrested in in this um, in this crackdown. So that's that's basically how the protests start. Right, and the issue of the U.S. role in it uh, in the beginning of the protest. I mean, this is my sort of specialty. I, I have a. PhD in political science, and I focus on U.S. imperialism, U.S. hegemony, and especially the role of the security agencies in furthering U.S. policy in a deniable way. And when you look at what happened in the years leading up to this, I mean, you there's we can only piece together some things, but there's actually enough available to be really um, suspicious about many of these uh, events and especially if you take a broader look at what the U.S. does when they manipulate civil society. So you have Victoria Nuland, that famous clip I'm sure you've seen, 
where she's standing in front of the standard oil, whatever Chevron logo. And she's saying $5 billion we've spent to improve democratic uh, institutions in Ukraine or whatever, you know, bullshit she says about, (laughs) but that's like $5 billion. And you give that to civil society groups. What, and then when you think about civil society or, or anybody who tries to do anything in the U S outside of working for government or corporate things, there's not many ways to get employment and earn a living that way. You're talking about throwing $5 billion around to organize people politically. Like, I mean, is it even possible to know how much that kind of organizing, you know, uh, largesse that they had behind them had to do with the protests in the first place? Or, I mean, not, of course there are legitimate and, and widespread gripes that people would have, and maybe some would be themselves uh, uh, loyal to the West, to the West, to Europe more than to Russia. But I mean, what's your, do you have any sort of take on what, uh, how we can even assess like the, the protests in the, in the big picture anyway? Uh, you know, I, I, it's hard to say with all this stuff. I mean, there's always uh, the, the countries like the United States governments rather uh, like that, the United States and, and other Western governments are always trying to exploit existing divisions, you know? So, I mean, you know, I think of, I, I'm from former Yugoslavia uh, from Serbia um, and, you know, obviously it was useful politically for Western governments to sort of um, uh, support the, the anti-Milosevic uh, protesters and, and, and movements in, in Serbia um, for their own reasons. They had nothing to do with, you know, his, his kleptocratic and, and brutal rule. Um, but that doesn't mean that there were, you know, there was genuine uh, opposition to him and people were not happy under him as well. So it is difficult to to always say how much of this is you know uh, Western governments feeding it, how much much of it is organic. I do think that ultimately, you know, the 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 probably the, the main precipitating factor here was Yanukovych's um, uh, uh, reaction, you know, his decision to crack down, and not just crack down, but then afterwards try and you know pass laws basically banning protests. Um, which quite uh, naturally and understandably inflamed um, much uh, more intense protests. But you're right. I mean, the the, pro- the the road to get to that point, of course, was fed by um, these uh, U.S. government-funded uh, groups who organized, you know, buses of people to go to Maidan to, to um, protest against the the, the uh, trade deal being um, uh, scuttled. Uh, and so, um, and, and, you know, we may find out in years and decades to come that there was actually a lot more extensive involvement um, by the United States and, and other governments um, than we even know, you know, because we, we only have bits and pieces because of, um, for instance, the, the leaked call between uh, Newland and the, and the ambassador to Ukraine, uh, which was probably intercepted by Russia and then <laughs> released. But without that snippet, we wouldn't. We would have no idea about this very damning kind of um, uh, conversation. So yeah, who knows? Who knows what else there is? But I, I think, I, I think thinking of it this way, that that you know they sort of uh, Yanukovych could have avoided what ended up happening uh, if he had taken a different tack to these protests, um, but he didn't. At the same time, these protests that, that led him to make this really terrible and authoritarian decision were fueled, um, you know, by by the United States uh, government. And so, uh, it, it may not be a case of 
some people like to say that the the U.S. orchestrated the protests. I think that's that's going a little too far. But they they did have a key hand in in what ended up happening and a sequence of events that led up to uh, what happened in twenty fourteen. The Yugoslavian thing is one of those issues that's out there in the mainstream discourse where I, I feel like what gets put out by the not just the liberal corporate media, but even the alternative media is uh, a really a, 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 a quite an accomplishment in terms of propaganda. When you look at just what we do know about what was done, I mean, the U S was, that was one of the reasons the blind shake, you know, the guy that was involved in that world trade center bombing, like his visas, he had all these visas that were granted uh, for, for different reasons. And he was in, he had a Bosnia office. Like there was a, a Bosnian office over there uh in right after afghanistan that that became like the location for like these this sort of jihadi you know okay we don't need them in afghanistan we'll we'll send them to bosnia similar to kosovo they had um the brother of ayman al-zawahri was commanding a unit in that worked with the kla who's also a disreputable organization to put it mildly and they were committing atrocities to which there were responses and then the responses were used as a justification. I mean, there were atrocities on all sides, but the U.S. was backing the worst of the worst to commit atrocities and provoke further atrocities, which were used to justify this U.S. you know uh, responsibility to protect. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, it's still so these these kind of operations are difficult to know exactly how they went down, but enough emerges that you see kind of a of a pattern. With this, in this case, you, an important, there's an escalation, as you say, after you, after the crackdown, but then really you have a lot of murders, I mean, deaths that take place that uh, end up leading to uh, the ouster of the president. What, uh, what have you come to learn about these uh, more violent catalyzing events uh, that, that really influenced the final outcome there? So it's it's a really complicated situation because the vast majority of the protesters are kind of pro-Western, liberal, pro-democracy people. They they want reforms to to end corruption. They want reforms to kind of bring proper democracy and and and, and proper kind of democratic accountability and oversight to the Ukrainian government. Um, but at the same time, Ukraine's uh, far right. Uh, they see these these protests, and uh, even though they're a, a small fringe, they decide you know we can use this for our own ends because they want to sort of get rid of you know the far right in Ukraine is against Russia, and so they see this you know pro Russian president and they want to get rid of him and and you know potentially uh, also push politics in their preferred um, direction, and so yeah they they look at this movement and they go you know we can take advantage of this. Um, and so, uh, uh, Vladimir Shenko, who's a really, really, uh, very well-informed analyst, uh, Ukrainian, uh, analyst, um, he, uh, looked at, you know, all these reports of, um, uh, on the, the Maidan protests in various places, both the West and the East. Um, and he found that, 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 you know, it, even though they were a very small number, the far right groups in Ukraine were very, very active in all of these protests, um, and particularly the most violent protests. Um, and uh, they really kind of they're, they're sort of a revolutionary uh, vanguard, where they, you know, the, the protesters are they are peaceful and you know nonviolent. They don't carry weapons. However, they the far right kind of 
comes in there and they do have weapons and not just the you know melee makeshift melee weapons they have rifles you know they have guns they have real they have real uh you know uh weaponry um and uh the the kind of fateful moment i guess where that that really really ends up kind of leading to to Yanukovych's ouster is in in uh february um uh there's this big clash between the protesters and the ukrainian government forces uh there's a lot of deaths a lot of people are shot um Yanukovych gets blamed for it that that he kind of ordered snipers to kill people and that may well be true um but also at the same time there's witnesses at the time who say they saw members of the far right or even far right uh MPs going into protester controlled uh buildings um and that they were firing into the crowd uh, uh and there's at the time you know doctors are saying well you know I, we we can't say for sure but just for a preliminary look we can see that the gunshot wounds and and even some of the ammunition that that is in both the police and the protesters is the same, which which is interesting. Um, and then there's actually there's a, a, a academic Ivan Kachinovsky. He he works in Ottawa, and he's also Ukrainian. He did a a, a big study of um, the evidence that came out in the the subsequent trials uh, around this incident because it was a huge, very controversial incident. Um, and uh, he he determined that you know if you look at the witness statements, if you look at some of the the ballistics information, uh, there's a it's almost certain that that members of the far right were were firing um, on 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 the protesters themselves to sort of uh, you know elicit a reaction, you know, knowing that Yanukovych would get blamed, knowing it would inflame the situation further, and that really is um, you know ultimately what what leads to Yanukovych's downfall because even when he um signs the uh the the power sharing agreement with his, with his opposition um people are so angry about all these deaths that happened that when the opposition politicians go back to the protesters and say look we've done this thing we've signed this we, we've we managed to figure out some sort of political solution to this people are livid and they're saying no that's not gonna that's that will not do he's a butcher he needs to be taken out and you know there, there's um you know i cite in the piece there's a a, a radio uh free europe you know which is a, a u.s government funded uh, outlet uh quotes a protester in in the west of the country who says you know if he's not out he's going to suffer the same fate as as gaddafi um and uh there's an ultra nationalist uh who who comes up on a stage in, in Maidan when the politicians come and, and bring this deal and the, you know as they shower with booze, he comes up and he says basically if Yanukovych is not out of here by the next morning, um we're gonna storm the presidential palace with weapons and and that's gonna be it. So uh I think seeing this, hearing this as well as the New York Times later reported, there was this um, a bunch of weaponry had been uh, seized from police stations in the west of the country and, and just gone missing. And there were rumors that the, the weapons were making their way towards Kiev uh, to, to be used against Yanukovych. And so he makes the, the pretty rational decision that he's going to get the hell out of there. And so he, he leaves. He, you know, he flees to the eastern part of the country and, and eventually to Russia and then basically parliament uh the next day um as people have sort of like 
uh, stormed the presidential palace and go into parliament, everything parliament um, uh, ends up uh, uh, ratifying essentially this this uh, toppling of Yanukovych. They they pass a resolution saying you know he's no longer the president. And so there you go. That's the, and so this is why people say is it a revolution? Is it a coup? I mean, I think <laughs> to some extent it could be both. Um, I, I do think that if people want to call what happened on January sixth a coup or a coup attempt, which I think is defensible, um, well, then there's that makes no sense that you would call that a coup, but then you would call this thing not a coup because uh, it's really the same sequence of events. In fact, I mean the the, the Maidan revolution was far uh, more dangerous and more violent um, with far more involvement of, of the far right, you know, actual organized far right forces than, than on, um, on January 6th. Yeah. The January 6th thing is very weird. I don't have, I don't even know what Trump was trying to accomplish having a look at that, <laughs> or if that, that was really what he had in the cards. I almost want, like I have a bunch of suspicions different competing clicks trying to do who knows what with that. I can't make sense of it myself. Mm. It doesn't make sense from the Trump perspective, but let me get back to the Maidan thing with the resolution of that with parliament's action. Was that a constitutionally um, authorized uh, act that they were committing? I mean, was there something in the constitution that allowed the parliament to, to dissolve the, the, uh, issued the pre- the office of the you know the, the presidency right it was a- you know i i am not an expert on on ukrainian uh constitutional law so i cannot tell you that but um you know my it's kind of a political that- si- a nerdy political science question i guess like <laughs> yeah. was it properly carried out <laughs> i mean you know uh th- perhaps i yeah i i would have to to really look into that i'm sure there is an answer i mean t- my impression is that they basically just kind of it, it they gave a kind of legal uh, patina to to what happened, you know, right? Um, and and understanding that really there was nothing else they could do. I mean, you know, if if <laughs> if the president of the country has has flown the coup because he was uh, terrified of being you know murdered, um, and and you know these guys had just gone the day before to to these protests and been roundly booed, even though they were on their side. You know, you, if you have a tinderbox like that, you know maybe the safest thing is just to just go along with it and kind of provide some sort of uh, constitutional legal rationale for it. Um, and it's interesting because of course, what happens in the interim government, the interim president is the very yeah, same that's guy. Right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. He's that's our, he's our man. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Victoria Newland, who, who in that phone call leaked a little bit earlier, says he, he should be the president. Wow. Lo and behold, that's what ends up happening. And also there are members of the far right who end up um, in this interim government in pretty key positions as well. Um, that, that's not uh, once, once uh, the next president Poroshenko comes in uh, that, that changes, but there's still, you know, there are members of the far right who are still members of parliament and, you know, can end up in, in positions in the, in the police hierarchy. And obviously Azov ends up in the, in the national guard eventually and everything. So, um, so yeah. Yeah, I think that there's a. Um, I'm gonna try to. I think I found the the URL for it the other day. This Chalmers Johnson interview where he talks about coups in countries, and he says um, this was recorded in 2004, and he says that trails off and intersects quite easily with the world of organized crime in that the methods of clandestine activities, of overthrow of governments, of uh, 
provocateurs in which you incite people to riot, have your own snipers kill a few of them, and then say that innocent bystanders were killed by the government you want overthrown. We've used that ploy so many times, from Jakarta to uh, Caracas just recently, uh, that it's almost insane to believe that you could see, uh, you know, Dan Rather putting it out once again that innocent bystanders were were shot by thugs of the uh, of the Chavez regime, uh, which he said, you know, in the, in uh, uh, just last year, when it's uh, standard operating procedure in overthrowing a place like uh, Salvador Allende in uh, in uh, Chile in 1973. That was my thinking on this whole business, that it just seems if it because I had already been following this stuff. So when it happened, I was like, this is I went as this was going down. I had all, I had I had gone from working for Obama and I worked on his campaign in 2008. Mm. But then after Obama, like presided over the coup in Honduras and Libya and stuff, I, I just thought this is this. There's something much worse with this uh, political system and just getting rid of George Bush isn't going to really do do anything. Mm. And so. I've got to learn about how this thing works. So I started reading all these people and listening to all these people. And so that when this Maidan stuff happened, that was my thinking at the time. And people like Robert Perry did excellent reporting mm. on this at the time. And it seemed like they were kind of caught more red handed with that Victoria Newland thing <laughs> than I could recall for other coups. But mm. that the way it's spoken about now is, I mean, there was at, at the very least U S backing the people and the extent to which it was a U.S. operation is going to be impossible to discern because that's the nature of these operations. But to me, like whenever they whatever they want to say now about this issue of Russia violating Ukrainian sovereignty, I mean, how is this how is this taken seriously by people as like a crime as like something serious in and of itself, given what the U.S. does all the time? Well, exactly. The the, the problem is that what is what is basically a a struggle between two great powers is is being cast as in this like very black and white kind of moralistic good guys and bad guys narrative which is it's it's not quite like that i mean unfortunately i think the truth is that that basically ukraine is like many other countries including yugoslavia is is kind of a a victim it's called in the middle of this this tussle um and you know we could Really, the context for that whole tussle goes back even further to the to the end of the Cold War because it's it's a, that itself is a product of um, the decision after after the Soviet Union uh, split up to continue basically expanding uh, Western and, and particularly U.S. influence uh, through Europe, which at the time was opposed by many people in the U.S. establishment, basically warning that the this exact uh, set of events that we're living through now would eventually happen if if this kept going, um, and you know, unfortunately, wiser heads didn't prevail, and now now we're we're finally we've we've gone to the point where those um, prognostications have have come true, and now we have to deal with the fallout. Yeah, there's a great quote from Paul Wolfowitz from around this time, and you know, I, I, people think that these neocons like Wolfowitz were kind of an aberration during the Bush administration and so on. But I don't, I don't see them that way at all. It seems like they never really got out of power. They have, and even when they put in like liberals or something like Samantha, Sam Power, okay. Mm. Like, okay, Sam Power, she's not a neocon, of course. Oh no. 
But then you look at like, where does she want humanitarian interventions to like topple regimes? Oh, it's just the exact same places that the neocons wanted to topple, like Syria, Libya. There's this quote from Wolfowitz. I'm sure you've heard it. You've come across it before where he says, after the fall of the Soviet Union, he says, yeah, we've got about 10 years to clean up these old Soviet client regimes before Russia's back on its feet. Okay, so you, with that in mind, and with with what they, the fact that they wouldn't allow Russia into NATO, even when there was a, a essentially a U.S. puppet running the country, I mean, what does this suggest about the longer game uh, towards Russia that the U.S. has been playing? Yeah, I mean, I think the the entire post Cold War policy is aimed at at, at uh, containing a resurgent Russia before it it comes back and I guess threatens Europe again. That's that's their their thinking. Um, the problem is, as, as lots of people point out, including George Kennan, the guy who came up with the very concept of containment, um, by doing that, you are creating the problem that, that you're sort of, that this whole policy is, is existing to, to prevent. Uh, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, um, which is kind of the, 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 I mean, it's an absurd tragedy, um, you know, in, in this whole circumstance, but, but yeah, that, that's what ended up happening. They want to contain Russia. They want to spread you know, U.S. military dominance through Europe. And um, uh, in the end, it, it elicited the, the very reaction. And after decades, you know, it wasn't instant, of course. It took decades of this kind of thing. Um, you know, uh, maybe the, the key thing, people talk about Putin kind of just having this um, uh, kind of neo-imperialist, you know, yeah, they so they personify it into Putin, like it's right, it's all yeah. Putin, it's the, and they do that every single time. What country has actually tried to stand up to U.S. hegemony, and then the and it, and then the reporting in the media was like, well, this person seems to be incorruptible and makes logical arguments for his policies. I mean, has that ever <laughs> ever happened? Right. Well, and and also remember William Burns, the guy who's right now serving as Biden's CIA director. He said in the nineties. He was in Moscow. He said, there's not a single person here in the Russian establishment, what liberal conservative across the entire spectrum, who does not oppose NATO expansion and thinks it's a huge provocation and, and a threat uh, and, and is a deeply unpopular thing. Uh, you know, one of many, I could go down the list of just, you know, dozens and dozens of people who made the same point. Kissinger, um, Kissinger, noted dove and peace <laughs> activist, said, the same, said similar things. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and, you know, Putin, for the first, what, eight years of his rule, um, he was just as, as brutal and ruthless and, and criminal as he as he is now. Um, but at that point, he he believed that he could make common cause with the West. Uh, and, and the West, you know, at first really, really loved him. You know, uh, they <laughs> turned a blind eye completely to what he did in Chechnya, which is uh, uh, even more brutal than, than what this Ukraine wars. I mean, it's, it, I think it was, that's something people need to remember when they, when they, uh, with this in mind, that he is pretty brutal in terms of like, if, if it's decided that this is the Russian national interest, then he'll pursue it to the, to its conclusion. He, he's a Russian nationalist. And so when you have a Russian nationalist in power and a Russian nationalist who was, who was, by the way, uh, put into power by the previous pro Western president, um, uh, but but in any case, yes. If you if you have someone like that in power, eventually, and someone who's who's very ruthless, who's very willing to violate international law and to carry out you know criminal acts um, to to get what he wants, uh, it's not 
unpredictable that that eventually he he might do this if if sort of his red lines aren't listened to. Uh, and you know the the I think the key turning point is is maybe two thousand eight because at that point um, there's actually a, a, a cable a diplomatic cable you can find in the WikiLeaks archive uh, where it's reported back to Washington what exactly Sergey Lavrov, who's the current uh, foreign minister for Russia, told uh, told uh, the U.S. Basically, and he's saying, "Look, if you put Ukraine and Georgia into NATO, that is unacceptable to us. That is a a threat to us. It's a provocation, uh, and we're just warning you right now. We we do not want this to happen." And and this comes after years of. Of, of not just Putin, uh, Putin's government, but also Yeltsin's government complaining about NATO expansion not being listened to. So they draw this red line. Um, and in 2008, uh, basically the entirety of NATO and even apparently U.S. intelligence agencies are telling George Bush, don't announce, don't say Ukraine and Georgia are going to join NATO. It's a needless provocation. There's no point for, you know, this is not going to be good for the balance of power in Europe. Uh, we we should just avoid this, but George Bush, being George Bush, um, does does it anyway. He does a speech where he says, "Yes, Ukraine and Georgia will join NATO," um, and I think that was kind of the turning point. In uh, uh, you know, I mean, we, we I can't say I don't have a direct link into Putin's mind, but it, it you know, at that point, what happens soon after that? That's when Putin intervenes in Georgia and carves out a sort of independent state as a kind of buffer, right against. A potentially well, that, that was kind of in response to u.s uh inroads in the country and, and actions taken by saakashvili too Rick, uh, well yeah right? there was a I mean, the, so georgia invaded and so he you know he was kind of that was that was a pretext he was defending you know against the georgian invasion of this of this uh part of the country but i think also it was a you know for him it was an opportunity to kind of carve out a piece of this and you know that's the first people don't talk about chechen when they talk about <laughs> putin's terrible uh uh violations of international law which which of course are outrageous and illegal don't get me wrong but when they talk about them they, they mention georgia they mention crimea and then they mention this latest invasion um notably all three of those things happened after that 2008 speech they didn't happen before. and there's a, there's a 2007 speech too as well mm-hmm. where he he's it seems like it's less specific but he's more saying like this era of russia being a doormat is over and uh, the u.s needs to start respecting russia's you know, concerns about its own security, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, so, yeah I, I, I agree with you that there that there was a change that was a, around that time for sure. Well, I, you know, I think he genuinely thought that he he could work with the West for a while, and then um, you know you, you have to remember there was NATO was expanding this entire time as well. So uh, by this by that point, uh, the number escapes me now, but it was over a dozen countries had, had joined, including two that that directly bordered Russia. Um, so I think at, at that point he started, and also again, uh, Putin's, um, as you mentioned, Putin's, uh, uh, kind of, um, uh, uh, bid to join NATO was rebuffed because of course NATO exists to contain Russia. And so why, why would, uh, NATO ever, ever let them in? And so, um, I think at that point he just decided, you know, I'm, I can't deal with the West. The West does not, and particularly the U S government does not want to be, to have good relations so uh, I, I'm going to have to do what I can to defend myself. Now, now, when I say that, people, you know, I don't want people to take this out of context and say, oh, well, that, you're saying that, that this is fine, that what, what he does is fine. No, it's obviously it's not fine. But again, if you have someone like Putin in power uh, leading Russia, 
um, you, and, and he sets certain red lines, you know, you can, you can predict what kind of behavior he might engage in, you know, if, if he doesn't, uh, if his red lines are crossed. And I think just a smart policy would be to, to not cross those lines, to have a little bit of respect for that um in order to even to if stability. even if he's even if he's paranoid or crazy just the fact of the matter from, from my point of view is that if he has nukes that can destroy the world which they are a nuclear superpower then you can't his perception of reality is important i mean you can and you can't discount it these like by this course of action imperils us all and predictably and it was predicted and whether he is correct about this or not, and I think that there's more reason to think that his fears about this are warranted when you look at U.S. actions in the nuclear realm. I mean, why has the U.S. withdrawn from arms control treaties when, I mean, Ellsberg has written about this. The U.S. uses nukes all the time, except they use them like a robber uses a gun. They use them to threaten people and get their ways diplomatically, which they've done uh, numerous times since acquiring the bomb. And when the U.S. at the turn of the century withdraws from those treaties, and they, which they've continued to do, uh, and it got worse under Trump, and there's, they, there's this missile defense issue, which is really not useful. It's, they said it was for Iran, but, but Russia took it as being directed at them for good reason, because it was put all around Russia's borders. And the issue with this is there's a couple of things is that one, those missile defense, you know, uh, batteries or whatever are dual use and they can be used to launch, you know, nuclear warheads as well, which supposedly aren't in those countries. But as Ellsberg points out in his memoir, the U.S. would lie about that in the Japanese case. And there's no reason to assume that the U.S. would, you know, not be deceptive about this. And with these missiles and Ukraine in particular as a location which Putin has pointed out in these speeches, once once the U.S. gets this hypersonic technology, which apparently at the moment Russia has an edge over, but there's a potential for a first strike that could hit Moscow within minutes uh, launched from a Ukraine point uh, and that there would be no time to really respond and that this missile defense could potentially be used to take away second strike deterrent capabilities and that it really is from the Russian point of view, a kind of a Cuban missile crisis thing, except worse than what the Cuban, mm. what the, the U.S. was ready to, to flatten Cuba before they even had the nukes there. Mm. And only Kennedy and Khrushchev were able to keep that from happening, pretty much. Mm. The generals all wanted to do it. So, I mean, is Putin, like, this security issue seems to be actually much more real and existential. And yet that is not reported in the West. And to me, that seems dangerous. If I think that there's a different level of awareness among the the military officials, there has to be, but it still seems dangerous to be trifling with these things this way mm. and for the public to be so stupid about it. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's so much to, to, to say in response to that. I mean, I think the Cuban missile crisis analogy is really key because, uh, Look, obviously, no one's saying that the U.S. response was was good and appropriate. That this idea that that the generals around Kennedy were ready to go have a nuclear war—that's a crazy idea, um, and is completely unjustified. However, um, it's also not uh, not an entirely unpredictable uh, 
circumstance or outcome of, you know, putting nukes into a country that is uh, just off the coast of, of Florida. Um, and, and uh, you know, I think it's a similar thing here. The reaction is not justified, but you can predict it. And maybe the better thing is to, to avoid doing that kind of thing, to avoid, you know, putting the entire world in, in, in nuclear peril. Um, you mentioned that the, this kind of stuff never gets talked about in, in, in uh, Western media, which is unfortunately largely true. Um, and the reason why it's important for people to understand is, you know, and again, there's this now, and I think it really is a concerted campaign to just label any of this stuff as kind of Putin apologism or, you know, justifying his invasion, yada, yada, yada. But, but the reason why people, why this narrative is being, is being pushed is because if you understand this context, then that kind of changes the, the kind of response uh, that the West should have, not just to this war, but to Putin as a whole. Right now, the, the dominant narrative, I think, it, it seems like, uh, among certainly among liberals, is that Putin is pure? He's a kind of Hitlerian um, uh, menace who is, who wants to. Uh, I mean, Paul Mason, for instance, uh, wrote a, a column talking about how Putin is eventually going to, you know, wants to to go all the way to Great Britain uh, to to take over the UK. You know, absurd. If, yeah, um, I wouldn't be too sad if he overthrew the Queen. <laughs> well, depend, I know we haven't seen the Queen for a while, so he, he may not really. Uh, She's hiding from him. No one's necessarily going to have to go in to, to do that. But um, uh, the, if, if Putin is kind of a, a Hitler-like madman who only just wants to expand the Russian empire and take over all of Europe, then that means there really is no possible negotiation. with That, that, that means that, that only, there only can be a military response because Hitler, of course, was not satisfied with security guarantees. He, he wanted to expand his borders. Um, however, if you if you understand this particular uh, uh, war as a response to to some of these security concerns, I think also to Putin's kind of nationalism and his view of Russia as a great power that has been kind of ignored and dismissed for too long, and is now asserting itself as a way of saying, "Hey, you can't push us around like this. We we will, uh, you know, we will do something in response." Then then there actually is a chance for a non-military solution. There's a chance for some sort of political settlement that creates some form of stability and, and maybe even peace, you know, God willing, um, in, the, in the region uh, that, that goes on for a while. Um, you know, and so I think, but of course, it serves a lot of interests, including weapons manufacturers um, who are just, you know, absolutely, absolutely making millions out of this entire thing. Uh, for that to be kind of pushed down instead for us to believe that, you know, Putin is just this blood and soil kind of nationalist who just wants to expand until he takes over the whole world. Um, because that means more weapons, more, more, uh, military vehicles, you know, more, more military spending. It does seem clear that the idea of a like democratic discourse influencing policy because people have access to information in the marketplace of ideas and then a consensus can be reached in order to have a you know an, the, the best and most enlightened public policy it's that is just not that is so obviously not the case it's so clearly top down and it's mm. it's it's shocking i won't say it's shocking it's jarring to me after years 
when it hasn't been deployed this way for militaristic purposes, to see it again, to see the power of the American propaganda machine uh, snap into into place because it's using all the same outlets that we already have and use every day. But all of a sudden, a big a swath of the population has just been turned into mindless uh, people. Only Now it has a weird kind of anti-war affectation. But these, mm. anti- these ostensibly anti-war people are talking about a no-fly zone. They, these anti-war people are going to get us all murdered or killed, you know, with nuclear bombs or something if, if they have their way. I, I can't, I've never seen anything like this. Yeah, I, I mean, and look, there is independent media that pushes back against this. But, but it's very chilling right now that the response to this war in the West is to uh, ramp up the kind of censorship efforts that have been uh, steadily rising since, I would say, about 2016, since the, the Trump um, uh, election. Um, and, and ironically, it's the same stuff Putin's doing over in Russia, which we quite rightly go, well, that's really bad. He's, like, censoring the Internet. He's controlling what information gets out. He's shutting down uh, outlets or, he's, you know, he's banning uh, fake news, yada, yada, yada. And then meanwhile, uh, that's exactly the response over here, because, of course, it's only independent outlets that that end up kind of trying to add a a layer of nuance and complexity to to this entire thing to tell people, hey, maybe the solution here isn't just pouring more weapons into that country and turning it into some sort of Afghanistan like quagmire. Maybe there's a a solution here that, that could involve, you know, some sort of diplomatic engagement between uh russia and the u.s and and the west which by the way isn't happening that all the 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 negotiations are just between ukraine and russia which are obviously incredibly lopsided um the u.s and nato and and western governments are involved in in these peace negotiations at all even even though i would argue and i think a lot of people would argue that this war is very much concerning them and is in large part to do with them um, and so it makes sense for him to, to go in, but th- there's no, there's no push at all, even in kind of liberal outlets, uh, to, to say, Hey, the U S should enter these negotiations and actually deal directly, um, with Russia. Instead, the only solution is just let's send more weapons in. Um, and, and that itself is very fraught. Uh, of course it's, you know, they're being invaded. Of course, we want to give them the ability to fight back. Of course. Um, that's that's what any kind of rational person would think. However, there are real risks because of the the, the presence of the far right in Ukraine, because of this far right that for years has scuttled any sort of peace um, in, in in the Donbass because they see it as a capitulation to Russia, and they're willing to to enact violence to to derail it. Um, that never or very rarely gets talked about, um, and in fact now it's going to a point that if you mention neo-Nazis and other ultra-nationalists in Ukraine, uh, oh, that's a a Kremlin talking point. That's, that's, that's that's Putin's, uh, you know, pretext and it's a propaganda. And, uh, yeah, there's a lot of really dangerous. Is Putin, uh, is he deploying his Photoshop army to Photoshop, you know, those neo-Nazi insignias on, on everybody's uniform and (laughs) somehow tricking Western media outlets into publishing them? I mean, how does that work? Apparently, Putin must have his uh, his hands in, in NATO as well, because NATO tweeted out a photo of uh, of, of the Azov regiment, uh, you know, getting grenade launches. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. I, I, that, how did this happen? How do we get to like 
yay, check it out. These Nazis now have grenade launchers and people are happy about it. It has been bewildering to watch political discourse over the last five years in, in the West, but the United States in particular, where, where has been liberal discourse has been obsessed with what I think is at the moment quite a small far-right threat. I mean, don't get me wrong, they're violent and, they're, and they're, they are frightening, but you know, still a very, very small threat when you consider all the things that are actually hurting ordinary Americans out there. Um, and yet, yeah, they this- would just they would just be some kind of weirdos in a backwater somewhere, most likely. I mean, the the, the they'd be fringes, fringe elements in in a faraway place. Exactly. And yet now, suddenly, I mean, in the space of, I mean, it was almost a week. Uh, suddenly, it's actually good to be sending uh, weapons to, to neo-Nazis. Neo-Nazis who, by the way, the, the Azov Regiment has for years had contact with Western extremists, including American ones, that, who go over to Ukraine and they see it as a way to, to get uh, uh, you know, experience, combat experience or other sort of training from, from uh, you know, a genuine far-right militia who has actually fought in a war and then come back home and, and deploy what they've learned uh, back home. Um, seems like that would be kind of a, a, a worrying thing, uh, you know, especially if now that that threat maybe even maybe fueling, uh, maybe being fueled to get bigger, because they're getting weapons, they're getting a lot more experience uh, in in war. They're also getting, I think, a lot more legitimacy now, um, not just in the West but in Ukraine as well, because they are on the front lines fighting the Russians. What does that mean, not just for? you know, any sort of blowback in the United States and, and the West. But what does that mean for in Ukraine, um, where if some sort of negotiated settlement is reached finally and the war ends, well, now you've got all these far-right people who are much better armed um, and uh, potentially looked at, looked upon as, as sort of national heroes. Um, I mean, I we, we no one has really thought about that. No one's talking about that. And we may not know what exactly the consequences of that are for, for some time. Right. I mean, there's all sorts of horrible things you can imagine them getting up to. I can't imagine that Putin wants to occupy the Western part of the country where they are more heavily concentrated. I mean, I'm really wondering what his end game here is. If he can't get Zelensky to negotiate, would he just... I mean, I, I've looked at that map from 2014 election. You may have seen mm. that. And I, I wonder if that map is going to be like if Putin is essentially going to and Russia is going to essentially declare those those places that went for Yanukovych to be independent, like the Donbass, you know, and then there and then what would be left is a as a Nazified Ukrainian rump state that's landlocked. I mean, I, I really am. And if if that were to happen. I mean, what would Zelensky would be notorious as the guy that just destroyed his own country, it would seem. And then and then what would you do with that other area? It's not like Russia would need to necessarily occupy it, but it would just it would be such a disaster. And why they say and it's a truism in international relations or diplomatic history that nothing can be, you know, a cynical one that nothing can be achieved at the negotiating table that can't be achieved on the battlefield. But for most of what Putin is trying to achieve he can achieve it on the battlefield. That seems pretty clear. So why is, why don't, why is, why do you think that there's so, there's so little apparent movement towards a settlement? Yeah. I mean, that in itself is it's such a big question. I mean, the, the, there's so much we don't quite know about this war that that's still kind of mysterious and, and not really clear. I mean, first of all, 
I think most people expected if Putin invaded that he would kind of keep it to a, a, a limited incursion. He would, he would maybe do what he did in Georgia, right? And, and maybe, uh, fight, fight in the East, fight back the Ukrainian government, and then say, these regions are now independent, they're an independent country, uh, and we're going to put in our own puppet state here. And now we, we once again have a buffer between these two states that could become NATO members in the future. Um, but instead, he, he went for the full regime change uh, operation. Um, and I mean, on the one hand, it looks like a pretty disastrous miscalculation, um, both because uh, there's some evidence that that Putin was maybe given bad intelligence about how uh, how easy it would be to to, to simply topple the government in, in Kiev. Um, but also at the same time, I mean, you know, the, the most brutal kind of uh, uh, fighting has happened in the east, the most pro-Russian <laughs> parts. Uh, while the West has been relatively untouched. Um, and then those people are already very anti-Russian. And so, uh, quite bizarrely, Putin has turned the, the, the eastern part of Ukraine, which is probably the, the most pro-Russian, but in, really against Russia, because they're the ones who have been turning their, 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 their cities into rubble and killing their people and doing all these terrible things. Um, really strange. Um, why has there not been more, uh, uh, movement and negotiations? I mean, uh, on the one hand, it's still not clear, you know, is, is Putin genuinely wanting to, to come to some sort of settlement or is he not? Um, what are the sticking points? I mean, we don't know all the details of what's been happening in the negotiations. It seems like they're sort of going somewhere, which is encouraging to see, but there's also still sticking points. Um, I think namely around, it seems like Ukraine is willing to give on the NATO issue, not joining NATO. They're willing to, to, to neutralize. Um, but it seems like the, 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 uh, big sticking point is still the accepting Crimea, uh, is, is Russian now and accepting that, um, these Eastern regions may, may, uh, you know, not be part of Ukraine. Um, uh, so I think all of that's going on. It, it may also be that, that Ukraine, uh, believes that they can still win this war or sort of fight Russia to a stalemate. Um, you know, I don't know, but that, that's certainly, uh, the narrative that's kind of being presented to, to Western, uh, uh, news consumers is that, um, you know, Russia's kind of losing this war and, and Ukraine is actually really pulling through, which is not clear at all. Um, there's actually, there was a, did you, did you see the Newsweek article? The yes, Newsweek article was, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. That to me, it was like, it, I thought somebody needed to write something to that effect because yeah. it just is not being stated that the, when you, if you compare this to the U S and Iraq, it's much less, there's much less indiscriminate dis- destruction and that the, the it, it could be far worse. It's a willful decision on the part of the Russian military not to, not to produce massive numbers of civilian casualties and flatten a lot of places that they could quite easily flatten. So, but instead it's just being described as this brutal, merciless, indiscriminate slaughter, which to me seems not wise to be speaking of it that way when that potential is there, Mm. but not being exercised. Well, yeah, as as the uh, you know Pentagon analysts and the and the military officers, the U.S. military officers that are quoted in that piece point out, you know, the, the reason this is important is because it suggests that actually, you know, there may be some sort of 
political solution that can be made here because it suggests that Putin is not intent on actually just destroying the country and is kind of leaving leaving it open, at least at this point, for some sort of settlement. For me, there were two big implications that came out of that piece. Um, one is that this idea that, that U.S. arms shipments, which I'm sure help, don't get me wrong, that the Western arms shipments, I'm sure they, they make some sort of difference. But the idea that they're making some sort of fundamental uh, alteration to the to the balance of, of power militarily here is not credible. And what that means is that instead what's happening is these shipments are just prolonging the war, which is just going to extend the, 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 the death and destruction that's happening. Uh, the second thing is that if Putin hasn't quite mobilized the full force of the Russian military to, to go up against Ukraine um, yet, um, uh, and and yet, you know, Russia's kind of stalled. Its progress seems to have stalled. At least some people say that. Um, it suggests that that means the campaign could get a lot more brutal. If, if there's not a settlement soon that, you know, in the next few weeks, before Russian forces become completely exhausted, before they, you know, they're, they're running short of supplies, before the Russian economy is, is you know, further um, injured by sanctions, Putin may decide, you know what, I'm going to just ramp things up and I'm going to do the exact kind of indiscriminate slaughter um, that, 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 you know, uh, I haven't really done up until now. And, uh, I mean, I think anyone who actually genuinely cares about Ukrainian people and isn't just sort of using them as this kind of geopolitical pawn, um, they would not want that. They should not want that. And we should try and actually make this stop and, and get some sort of political settlement before we get to that point. Cause that's a, that's a very real possibility. Um, you know, right. I mean, I, I just, I'm hoping that some sort of common sense prevails. Now you were actually mentioned in this, article which i thought was terrible but it was i mean it was a really spectacularly bad article and it kind of is it's one of those articles that's fleshed out enough to where it really gives you a like three-dimensional rendering of how bad the our media is um that new york new york magazine article i'm sure you know what i'm talking about eric levitz or whatever where i have to think he can't be as as uh, clueless as this this piece, he must be kind of auditioning for something, you know, like he wants to stay in the good graces of the of the of the establishment or something because it's a, it's a strange article. But anyway, he said he accused you, uh, or he I won't say he, he wasn't especially like scathing towards you, but um, he called your case tellingly elliptical, which I thought was funny considering what he leaves out about the, the U S role in all of this, like, okay, who's, whose ellipses is larger. <laughs> but, but anyway, setting that aside, um, says you choose, you choose to invade against the purely hypothetical prospect of arming a future Ukrainian insurgency against a Russian imposed puppet government in Kiev. Um, this maneuver shifts the terrain of the debate into the left's comfort zone. First of all, who gives a shit what the left's comfort zone is anyway? When has the left had any, who listens to the, who has, what does the left have any influence on in the U S did you see the Bernie Sanders guy, the Matt dust guy? And he came out and said like the progressive position is Biden's position, right? So that basically shows you how much daylight there is between any part of the political spectrum and Joe Biden. Right. Mm. But in, anyway, so, 
um, your reframing allows you to recycle the left's battle-tested arguments what, that, that they always lose anyway uh, <laughs> against funding destabilizing insurgencies against loathsome regimes. Um, I mean, this is... I mean, look, where, uh, what, do you, what did you make of this? Like, well, your argument was against funding a huge insurgency. So let's just start with that. Yeah. Or let's just get, get with that. I don't, we, don't, we don't need to go on much longer, but I did want to talk about this piece because <laughs> I thought it was so bad. And I thought your argument was, was so, you were just pointing out the obvious here, but summarize what you were trying to say. Yeah, sure. The, your argument. Uh, I'll say, you know, a response to that piece is, is, is coming. Um, uh, there's just been some things uh, this week that have happened schedule-wise that have uh, stopped it from coming sooner. But um, Eric is a smart guy. I respect him. I think he's absolutely dead wrong here. Um, and I think he uh, leaves out some really uh, key things that are central to both mine and just the Western, uh, sorry, the, the, the left wing uh, opposition to, to the, the Biden policy thus far. I mean, for one, he, he says it's a purely hypothetical idea that I'm inveighing against about the U S turning Afghanistan into a quagmire. That's, that's completely wrong. I mean, number one, we know uh, from a piece that was published last year that since 2015, uh, the U S has been training, uh, Ukrainian military uh, to to create an insurgency. Um, now you have a, you have a good article on that, right? You have an article yeah. on that. It, uh, yeah, yeah, because you know, there's no doubt that as part of this training, some of some of the training has gone to far right forces. That that's just absolutely. That, Which that is it, and it's a very like that was the original Gladio. Uh, stay behind armies were NATO, and they were there in case of a Russian invasion. You would have all these Nazis and far right people. Eventually, because the Russians never invaded, they just used them to like stage terror attacks that they could blame on communists, you know, in, throughout the Cold War. But like, this is not like some new thing, right? Right. And and but beyond that, you know, we know from uh, reports as early as December last year that the Biden administration has been expressly planning for this outcome. And just the other day, uh, on Saturday, the New York Times, David Sanger, the New York Times, did this big piece about you know, basically drawing on the testimony of all these different unnamed U.S. officials about what exactly the, the U.S. policy was, what the strategy was. And and that piece in the New York Times is outright that, you know, Russia, uh, sorry, the U.S. is trying to help Ukraine draw Russia into a quagmire. So it's not a hypothetical. It, this, this, is the, this is the policy. And unfortunately, it seems like that might be the most likely uh, uh, policy or the most likely outcome here because there's absolutely no push for uh, among liberal columnists and among you know activists in the West, for the U.S. to get into a negotiation with Russia, it's purely just let's send arms, which is part of this whole insurgency fueling strategy. Now, why is that bad? I mean, look at what happened to ordinary Afghans and ordinary Iraqis, way more of whom died in the years following the initial invasions, uh, as this as the quagmire rolled on. Um, they not just died, but I mean, the amount of suffering, I mean, if you turn a country into a permanent war zone, you're not only decimating their economy for years and years and years, uh, you're weakening their, their, their health outcomes, you're disrupting their lives, you know, education, uh, jobs, all of that stuff. I mean, it's terrible. Yeah, it's, it's immeasurable. It's immeasurable, the devastation that we uh, wrought upon the, the population of, of Afghanistan, and not, and not just with the post 9-11. I'm talking about really with the decision under Jimmy Carter to weaponize Afghanistan, similar to the way they decided to weaponize Ukraine 
um, against against Russia. I mean, this is mm. well, and and I think you know if we're going to talk about what what is the priority here for people in the press if they have a platform, is the priority really to uh, go after you know left wing groups and and, and writers uh, and say you know you're foolish for not wanting to send more weapons into this country. Or should it be the priority to say this considered U.S. strategy right now of turning Ukraine to a quagmire is absolutely unconscionable and should not be done, uh, and 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 we should do the opposite. And we should try and figure out a way to come to a settlement. Eric's argument, I think, is that um, uh, the 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 weapon shipments are what has brought Putin to the negotiating table because of what we've already discussed. Uh, where we've seen that that there's significant evidence that Russia just hasn't, you know, if it's stalled, it's not been because of these weapons shipments. It's because of factors completely different. I I am not certain that that is the case. Um, but more to the point, you know, the, Eric and and it seems like everyone who kind of talks about this issue completely elides the the problem of of the Ukrainian far right. He does mention at one point, well, you know, it, it, it's too bad some weapons will go. Um, into the black market, and they'll end up killing people. That's that's really bad. But it's not it's not as simple as that. I mean, it's it's yes, that is one one problem here. Um, but there's also a central problem of what happens when far right militias. Who I will say again, in the years leading up to this, any time a, a, a president, a Ukrainian president, tried to implement anything in the Minsk Accords to to bring some sort of peace to the eastern part of Ukraine. Um, the far right would either threaten or carry out violence against that president. There was a, a, a battle in 2015 uh, outside of the Ukrainian parliament as they were preparing to partly implement some of the Minsk Accords, where three um, Ukrainian security forces were uh, uh, three members of the Ukrainian security forces were killed because protests were, were throwing grenades and, and other stuff in there. Uh, when Zelensky was was elected, who you, remember, you have to remember, Zelensky was elected. On a on a massive mandate, seventy four percent more than he got in his fictional TV show, <laughs> they became president <laughs> on a peace platform, and he said something along the lines of, "You know, we're gonna we're gonna get peace at any cost." Seventy four percent of Ukrainians voted for this. Uh, the leader of the right sector in this interview says, "You know, if he if he does this, if he if he tries to get peace at any cost, and, and basically surrenders to Russia in, in his thinking, he's he's gonna pay for it with his life." So what happens when these groups suddenly have a, a, a massive cachet of weapons and, and actually a lot more legitimacy in Ukrainian society because they are seen as the most kind of um, ardent and committed fighters against the Russian invaders? Uh, you know, may, you, can, you can say that maybe this concern that, that I have about that is, is misplaced, but you have to deal with it. You have to at least grapple with it. And, and that's just completely absent from that article. And it's completely absent from the entire discourse about this uh and yeah so that i think that's you know uh, that's i guess a preview of some of the responses to that. good i'm curious to hear that i mean i i just thought why is this article getting written and to me it just seems like a preemptive attack itself on having any sort of like uh the left position is is much more commonsensical and the absurdity of the prevailing uh, position, this almost un unanimous one or close to it, this almost consensus position, 
that that this is helping the Ukrainian people when like it seems like most obviously they're the ones that are going to get the you know raw end of, of mm-hmm. this. It's, it just is very it's hard to say that see how this helps the Ukrainians at all by doing this when like what when what Putin was asking for uh the denazification thing okay that's vague and like what does that even mean but i can't it's hard to see a scenario where you where those uh, people in the donbass that were fighting for so long at very least in crimea go back to control from you know being under kiev the uh, regime centered in kiev oh. and the the neutralization part seems quite attainable for putin and not unreasonable when you think about it i mean what what do you think would have happened if the situation were reversed and Mexico was treated like Ukraine was? Do you think that the U.S. would wait eight years before taking military action <laughs> under this kind of situation? Well, certainly I, I, I would suspect that there would be some sort of uh, meddling in, in its politics to prevent, you know, uh, to prevent whatever pro, uh, I don't know, Chinese or pro-Russian uh, political forces within there to, to stop them from coming to power. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, you look at look at U.S. behavior, U.S. government behavior, rather, of decades, and I think it's a pretty predictable outcome. It doesn't mean that it would be right or good, but you know, if you are a power like Russia or China, and you're going to come into a military alliance with a neighboring country and uh, to the United States, I mean, this is one of the things that you should probably tread very carefully around, because you know, I, I think you know, not to not to beat up too much on Eric. Here, but he talks about the 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 um, you know how people on the left should not be engaging in realist arguments, and you know I'm, I I sympathize with that to an extent because of course we don't want to kind of de facto justify a whole bunch of terrible behavior by governments, but the problem is that that the world that we live in there, there is no um, we have not created robust multilateral institutions that, that that actually can impose any sort of order on the world. At the end of the day, unfortunately, we, we haven't done that. We saw that actually just with, um, you know, when Russia vetoed that that Security Council resolution um, that was condemning the war, and people went, "Wait, what? what? Well, why does Russia even have a have veto power? I mean, what? That's ridiculous." And it's like, yeah, it is, and that's that's because of the profoundly undemocratic nature of 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 the UN and other organizations like this. So we don't have those institutions that exist to keep a check on on other uh, on, on 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 the strong in the world. Uh, and their behavior towards the weak, and in the context of that world, I mean, governments have to uh, have to behave to some extent with with the kind of realist mindset in mind. They have to think about balance of power. Um, they have to think about, okay, you know, theoretically, I have the absolute right to do this, but is it a smart idea? Given that at the end of the day, I don't have anyone who's going to be helping me if, if push comes to shove. It's you know. Um, and I think that, you know, that's a, that's a difficult thing to grapple with for people on the left, I think. Um, and I'm, I'm still trying to figure out exactly what I, what I think about it all, but, um, you know, I don't think it's quite as simple as just saying, oh, well, you can, we can just completely dismiss realist notions, um, of, of international relations because that's just ridiculous. Uh, we should just sort of live in a fantasy land where, um, oh yeah, absolutely. Every government can do whatever it wants and there's no consequences for it all. And of course you can always just go to the UN or the international criminal court to, to stop that from happening. Yeah. I, I mean, what, um, what country has successfully maintained its sovereignty and, you know, independence 
freedom of you know its own agency while adhering to uh, liberal norms and uh, not being tainted by any sort of violation of like international law. I mean, what country has has tried to stand up to U.S. hegemony while simultaneously adhering to the dictates of proper behavior that like people like Sam Power would uh, would espouse? I mean, has any country maintained independence from U.S. domination? Well, following those sort of uh, those policies, you know, I mean, I I think of, I guess, the 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 non-aligned movement, um, you know, that the Yugoslavia was once part of. Um, But of course, that wasn't just one nation. That was a lot of different nations um, uh, coming together. And Yugoslavia is very strange and unique in that. Mm. Like they were they they had that split with Moscow and Mm -hmm. they were allowed to exist for a while. But after the Soviet Union ends, what happens to Yugoslavia? Right. Yeah. I mean, of course, I'm not like teaching you anything no 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 no, for sure well yeah and you know i mean part of the policy there of course was because it was a it wasn't a unipolar world it was a it was a bipolar world yugoslavia and other countries like that were playing one side against the other um which is interesting actually i mean right now in serbian kind of foreign policy that seems to be what they're doing still like kind of treading this fine line between you know staying in russia's good graces but also you know trying to get certain favors uh from the u.s and the west those countries understood that okay, it's great that the UN exists, but the UN is very flawed and, and all these other institutions are very flawed. And at the end of the day, we have to sort of come together. Those of us who don't want to be stuck in this great power rivalry, the superpower rivalry, um, caught in the middle of it, we have to sort of come together and and, and make a, a, a third way to prevent us from from being torn apart, which unfortunately, in, once the Cold War was over, that, that, uh, that stopped uh, working. Right. Well, I hope that... This will somehow lead to a multipolar world wherein, because of power situations, people have to adhere more to international law. I would hope that that's the outcome. I think that it seems like the U.S. is trying to recreate a bipolar world, and I don't know that they're going to be able to do it because there's not the, the, the currents of history are just different. So that makes me wonder if, like, in some ways, Putin was provoked into doing this so that the U.S. could try to construct this. But that gets into, you know, areas of I'm not privy to what the people at mm. the very tippy top are thinking. And they sure don't, you know, speak it publicly too often, although sometimes tidbits get out. Mm. Your odd Rand report here and there might mm. give you a glimpse into what they're thinking. But um, well, it, hey, I, I really appreciate you uh, talking about all of these things here and your writing at Jacobin is always worth checking out. I look forward to reading your response to that uh, Levitz article. I'm sure it will be uh, kinder uh, and more temperate than what I would write if I were going <laughs> to put something out about it. So uh, I tip my hat to you there. And uh, thank you very, very much for joining us here. Yeah, thanks for having me. I hope you appreciated this discussion. As ever, we want to offer you perspectives that typically get suppressed or shouted down in the discourse that prevails in the so-called free press of our declining empire. I can't say for sure, but I would guess that it might have been refreshing for Bronco to be talking with someone who has even less tolerance than him for the U.S. line on these matters. 
If you are a new American Exception listener, please consider subscribing on Patreon. We have lots of material that you can't find anywhere else, offering deep dives into the dark side of the lawless U.S. empire. I want to thank Dana Chavari for engineering the audio and Casey Moore for his artwork. Thanks also to Mock Orange for providing our music. Let's all keep chasing the light. I want to see those super fine eyes.